Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 81 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a stunning view of currently my neighbor walking a dog. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a professor of philosophy at Yale and the author of a provocative book entitled How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Hello and welcome, Jason Stanley. Thanks so much, Michael. Are you uh, preparing to not go back to school these days? Well, I have one semester leave coming up after three years of or four years of teaching. So, uh, so I am rigorously putting out of my mind all, uh, all of the massive details that are required in order to teach this semester. And they, I am told, are massive. Yeah, I'm sure there's lots of uh, emails coming your way that it's a lot of fun to ignore. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm doing. So I, I want to talk to you about fascism as it regards Donald Trump. That's my main interest in talking to you. But I do have a question up front about the rise, the return of fascism as a global trend. It strikes me, and this is certainly not something that only I have observed, that very often there are global movements politically. There were all the revolutions in Europe. Fascism cropped up so many different places in the 1930s. In your opinion, based on your research, why do these flus of the mind spread across the globe, even with people who aren't really in contact with one another? Right. So that it, this happened in the late 20s and 30s, the uh, fascist internationale. Uh, the United States was deeply involved, had very strong fascist movements, the uh, German-American Bund, the America First movement uh, was largely a fa fascist movement. The Ku Klux no, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure everybody would even know exactly what you're talking about. Charles Lindbergh was a, a, a real player in the political scene uh, and, and was pretty clearly by any definition a fascist. Yes. He was the person that the, the Nazis actually looked to to be a potential American Führer. Hitler, a potential American dictator. Uh, the HBO, HBO's series, The Plot Against America, is reviewing some of that history. The Ku Klux yes. Klan was a fascist organization. Uh, I think we can fairly say that. When the, when the official Italian fascists emerged in the 1920s, the, the American newspapers called them a kind of Italian Ku Klux Klan. So the question is, why, when all, why did all of these... Uh, th there was an organization called the Fascist International, which in the 20s and 30s, which brought together different fascist organizations in different countries. Now, some of those organizations, some of those political parties and social and political movements didn't regard themselves as fascist. There's a famous story of a Spanish fascist who was invited to speak at the Fascist International, and he said, I'm not fascist, I'm Spanish. So... Uh, so uh, again, so that's because fascism is ultranationalism. So that's right. Each fascist movement is going to appear like uh, a very strong uh, uh, manifestation of the country's traditional uh, uniforms and sports. You know, uh, so right now the the Bolsonaro supporters in in Brazil, Bolsonaro, I think, is a fascist. 
I, I think, think that's fair pretty, to say. Yeah, fair to say. And they've appropriated the the national soccer jerseys of the Brazilian team. So uh, so so that that's very common. So right now, one is seeing again in a whole bunch of different countries, one seeing a rise of ultra nationalist parties promising to make the country great again by stomping out the minorities, confronting the liberal elites in the media and the university, and restoring the country to its rightful owner, uh, the dominant majority race or religion. So we see this in India, we see it in Brazil, we see it in the United States, we see it in Hungary, we see it in Poland, we see it in Russia, we see it in Israel, we see it in a bunch of countries. And so yeah. the question is, why in the 30s and why now? Um, yes. So one aspect is globalization, uh, sure. a reaction to globalization. So that's definitely what happened in the 20s and 30s when you had the first massive move to globalization and you had a reaction to that with, of course, uh, this idea that there are these people that fascism requires this conspiracy theory that there are these elites who are global and not national. For the Germans, it was the Jews. Nowadays, I think you could, it's Muslims are widely regarded play, playing this role. But so there's this reaction to globalization. I think these movements are related to each other. I mean, Trump is very close to Bolsonaro, is very close to Modi. They're all close to Netanyahu and Putin. So, uh, so uh, in, in this case, at this moment, I think a lot has to do with the multinational corporations. The multinational corporations are being pressured by mm -hmm. international agreements against climate change, and they want to keep the oil flowing longer, uh, the, the rainforests being, uh, being uh, depleted further. Uh, they, and and the, the weaker individual countries, the, the weaker inter the international community is, the stronger multinational corporations are. So I think you find, you find, for instance, the Koch-funded Heartland Institute behind a lot of the European far-right ultranationalist movements. I'm always inclined to look in the most pragmatic, you know, Occam's razor terms before I, you know, I, I sort of, uh, on a gut level, reject conspiratorial thinking. I do think there's something to be said for the perception for many, I'll just say Americans, that globalism has been a raw deal for them perhaps the reality that globalism has been a raw deal for them and it uh, it seems much simpler to just say no one I, i've personally interacted with trump supporters who say no one's even talking to us no one's even acknowledging us nobody came and you know within 50 miles of where i live to talk about the issues that have changed my life and made my life in my opinion worse in the last 20 years until he came along it doesn't necessarily have to be a uh, a conspiracy. It doesn't need to be a corporate thing. It can just simply be that the political system as it existed for the last couple of decades or generations has failed people and a bad answer is better than no answer. Yeah. So I think you're unquestionably right that, uh, that uh, the political system had terribly failed, the Iraq war, the financial crisis, the terrible self-dealings, between Democrats and Republicans, between the lobbyists and the Democrats and the Republicans, without a doubt, uh, there, were, there was a terrible reaction to the financial crisis. Um, however, what one needs to explain, and Trump ran on some of those issues, uh, but what needs to explain is why, why is it that we have much more corruption and self-dealing 
and right. it, it's much worse. And you know, it's it's completely unprecedented the level to which the worst aspects of the global elite multinational corporations have completely robbed us blind under the Trump administration. So and that, yeah. So I think it's a kind of this is a standard story in the history of fascism that they're promising this kind of politics promise a kind of promises a cultural visibility at the cost of a real human and economic toll. Right. And and this gets into your uh, your 10 pillars of fascism, which is what I want to share with people and go through with you today. Um, before we do, I kind of want to just lay down a baseline of where I'm coming into this, where you are. Um, I personally suspect it's a bit of a stretch to call Trump a, a pure fascist, but I fear that it, it might not be. Um, as a rule of thumb, I've been asking myself, how different is what he is doing from what was likely to have happened if replacement level Republican had become president? And perhaps uh, more pertinently, how different is this from Nixon? I wasn't alive during the Nixon era, but I think the echoes of that, I mean, they're more than echoes, the, the loud reverberations of the Nixon era on both the left and the right are are, are uh, not enough. There's this recency bias where we all want to say, well, this has never happened before. This is completely unprecedented. And media sensationalism plays into that on both sides. It doesn't feel all that unprecedented. He's Donald Trump's a different person from Richard Nixon. But the politics and the brute tactics don't seem that different at all. Um, fascism has become a debased word. It gets thrown around. Every president gets called a fascist by some punk band somewhere. As I'm sure you're aware, there were books about how George W. Bush was a fascist. I mean, for, do you I, consider... I think Cheney would have been a better example. Okay, would you consider Dick Cheney a fascist? I consider neither Dick Cheney nor Donald Trump to be fascists. I oh, okay. I, I consider the Republican Party post-Newt Gingrich, as a result of Newt Gingrich, to be taking on the trappings of, I mean, some in the Republican Party, too many, uh, mm -hmm. of a fascist social and political movement. And I think that Trump is a symptom of that and not a cause. Uh, so when you, when you treat the opposition party as completely illegitimate, when you treat yourself as the only party that should rule, then you're moving in the direction of authority. You're, you're an authoritarian political party. You're saying that political power should be yours and yours alone. And there's different flavors of authoritarianism. There's communist authoritarianism. There's fascist authoritarianism. There are other kinds. Fascist authoritarianism is when your political party is anti-gay, uh, you know, anti-liberal, uh, uh, Islamophobic, uh, uh, harshly, uh, har harshly against minority religions, harshly anti-union. Uh, so uh, uh, uses violence and militaristic symbol symbols uh, to crush dissent. Goes against the free press. Well, both of all the different forms of authoritarianism do that. So if you're looking at the flavor of authoritarianism that, that w we risk in the United States, it's not communist authoritarianism, it's fascist authoritarianism. But it's not Donald Trump. It's mm -hmm. the Republican parties seeking to be a one-party state, to rule as a minority party, supported by the minority of Americans. And, uh, and in a way, you might look back at this time from the perspective of 2025 or 2028 and miss Donald Trump.
Now, when you say that they're trying to rule as a minority party, you're talking about uh, vote suppression, gerrymandering, things of, of that yeah. nature, because I don't think you'd find too many Democrats who and I'm just going to keep playing devil's advocate throughout yeah. here. It's kind of how I think through things. Yeah. I don't think you would find many Democrats at any level who think that Republicans deserve an iota of power. So how is that different? Oh, I think Joe Biden thinks Republic. Joe Biden is, is a an Obama. And you might, you know, you might say some, some. Uh, I, so I, I don't actually think that's correct. I think that, you know, um, I think that was a mistake that Obama compromised too much with Republicans who had decided to run against them as the party of no. But the Democrats generally have been very into compromise and very into, uh, they have not at all been, they've not been any kind of far left party. Uh, and I think that, you know, you can have, linkages between the i mean i'm very left uh i'm on the aoc side of the party uh okay. but uh but i think that aoc would link with uh with um republicans who sought to curtail the power of banks or big tech there's plenty of opportunities for compromise across the aisle on various uh on on various economic things that all americans want and both political parties the republicans and the democrats have sold america out uh, to lobbyists, and that's why uh, they're open to someone who denounces the political system as corrupt, and then you know themselves moves in as a kind of strongman figure. Um, so, uh, so I think the the uh, so I think I agree with you that that uh, I'm I'm worried that what Trump has done is open the door to to forces that, as I show argue in my book. Have long have long been uh, part of this country, and Nixon is an example I use frequently in my book. My book yes. is about is not about who's a fascist; it's about mm -hmm. fascist tactics. And right. you can use fascist tactics if you're not a fascist. And in a way, the question of is acts a fascist misleads us, and it's a, not something we should be focusing on. We should be focusing on uh, how non-democratic are we getting. Uh, and how much in this fascist direction are we going? Because it's not an either-or matter. You you drift when you when you you know a lot of my book focuses on mass incarceration, and one of the architects of mass incarceration was one Joe Biden, who's the Democratic candidate for president. So uh, you know we now incarcerate. First of all, our incarceration rate it is perhaps it's arguably the highest incarceration rate of any society in history. One of them, certainly. It rivals the early 50s under Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union. Um, of our black incarceration rate, almost 10% of all the world's prisoners are black American, and there are only 40 million black Americans. So if you look at our society, you're looking at a society that incarcerates its traditionally oppressed minority at rates comparable to the worst moments in human history. So we're already looking at a society that has deeply problematic fascistic elements. And then our question has to be, in what ways does the Trump administration accelerated this process yeah. and radicalized the elements, the Christian nationalist elements in the United States, the, the, the authoritarian elements in the Republican Party? And I think Trump has has deeply exacerbated these elements without himself being in any kind of conscious, uh, I think he plays these tactics because they, they help him win. Yeah, I read, I'm um, reading John Bolton's book and he could divine no underlying 
framework or principle whatsoever. It was a patchwork of, I think this will work here. I think this will work there. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so what you're really saying, and I wasn't clear on this. I'm glad you for, I'm glad you clarified it is you feel like in many ways, the status quo of America in a pre-Trump era was already too fascistic for comfort. Absolutely. The status quo in America is what, uh, is what Hitler drew on in Mein Kampf. I mean, well, Hitler, the, 19, the 1930s status the 19, quo, not the, the 2015. The, the 20s yeah. and 30s. Our racial history, but mm -hmm. with mass incarceration, we've replicated, which happened under Democrats and Republicans. No yeah. one is not to blame for that. Uh, and, and it's not like we didn't know about it happening. I mean, if all you had to do is listen to the words of Tupac Shakur's top hits, and he was telling you what was happening. Uh, you know, so both Democrats and Republicans are to blame. We've created a, a police state. If you look at Black Lives Matter has brought our attention to the fact that, uh, that the budgets for police are massive in our cities. Uh, the, new, the operating budget for the NYPD is $5.6 billion a year. The total, total amount spent on the NYPD is $10 billion a year. I mean, why are we spending so much money to deal with the symptoms of things that we could be spending the money to treat the causes? So, uh, so that all, you know, all of this, so tr what Trump did is he, he ran using old-style fascist tactics that are present in American history. He's got elements of his administration, Stephen Miller, who are much, who I would say are fascist ideologues. I have no problem with that. Stephen Miller is, uh, you know, uh, xenophobic. A key thing in fascist ideology is anti-immigration. The idea is, you know, the immigrants are going to take over and replace our culture and destroy our traditions, and they're here to rape our women and their gang members and criminals. Hitler thought the Jews were bringing the, the it's always, you know, the, in, 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 anti-Semites always say the Jews are bringing immigrants in and the immigrants are there to destroy the white race. So that's right. the sort of core element of the KKK fascism. And that really looks a lot like Stephen Miller's ideology. Also, Stephen Miller has been trying to connect immigrants to disease since 2017, which right. I don't have to tell you is a, so what you have with Trump is you have him bringing in, a, you know, Islamophobes, uh, you know, uh, fascistic, people with fascistic uh, ideologies, um, all of those things uh, into, uh, into his administration because he just wants power. And, and that's why he's also letting the multinational corporations do what they want. Uh, you know, so he himself is not acting so much like a fascist leader. Yeah, again, going back to the the Bolton book, Bolton, saw, as he saw it, was the first term was, uh, have you read it, by the way? I have not. Was the first term was all about, he said, every single calculation was solely about what will get me reelected. And he said, the irony is if he succeeds in doing that, the Republicans, both party and voters who would be so overjoyed at that, might be very disappointed to find out what a second term uh, Trump driven solely by legacy would actually be all about. Because as you say, these are, these are tactics for his own power. There is no movement. The movement right. is him. Right. Well, that I having been said, I, there's things, the, 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 the rallies, the Twitter. The I mean, rallies, the, the rallies. There is a but, movement. Yeah. There's, a move, there's a movement when Trump said, and that's why, so we all don't know. I mean, it's, 
wrong to underestimate him, but it's wrong yeah. to overestimate him too. So it's very complicated. Endlessly like, fascinating. Yeah. If, if you look at what he's doing with the post office, that has been playing the long game with the post office. He's also talking to Vladimir Putin on a regular basis. So it's not like he has he lacks advisors who who can, you know, who who aren't telling him who can't advise him about how to remain in power indefinitely. Well said. It's you can't underestimate him, you can't overestimate him, but it just seems like uh, the the power thing. It, I I feel like in my gut, I, I his his lust for power, both his own and others. I understand it in almost like Freudian terms, not even political ones. But that is that if that is the fascism literature. We read Wilhelm Reich, the mass psychology of fascism. The fascism literature is all about Freud. Ah. <laughs> uh, uh, for the, I mean, that is, uh, you know, as Wilhelm Reich said, you know, why do the follower, you, Kanye West said something very profound that fits directly into Adorno's and, and co-author's book, The Authoritarian Personality, and Wilhelm Reich's The Mass Psychology of Fascism. You've just tapped into the heart of fascism. Kanye West said, everyone blew off his, uh, his White House interview, but, uh, when, but he said to Trump in the White House, he said, you know, I didn't have a father. And when you came on the scene, I felt you were my father. Well, that's, that's the most, that is again and again what the fascism literature is about. The authoritarian personality, the great 1951 work on the kind of personality that falls for fascism is all about the patriarchal family. It's about people being raised with a patriarchal father and seeking a patriarchal father. It's all about Freudianism. So, what you've said is why one thinks that this style of politics is fascist. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of, of the pillars. I'll, I'll read them back to you. You've uh, provided me with a, a really nice summation that I assume, you know, reflects uh, a, a, a pretty good starting point for what each uh, chapter of your book is all about. Number one, the mythic past. We descend from a glorious patriarchal past. They threaten that legacy. And again, I just want to, the only way I can think of to talk about this is just to push back at you as best I can think of to play devil's advocate. I can't think of a politician, a national politician in America, and I assume it's the same worldwide, who doesn't appeal to this sense. It's like the Jebediah Springfield episode of, of The Simpsons, of we just believe that we are a group that has some intrinsic worth and this well of us-hood that we can draw on, that we draw strength and move forward propelled by, how is the current era's uh, us versus them and appeal to the mythic past different? So, so the fascist mythic past is very different from, say, social conservatism. So okay. social conservatism, I mean, as, you know, fascism is ultimately about a certain kind of ultranationalism. But you might say, but there's plenty of people are nationalists, right? But nationalism can just be, hey, there were some Poli people who spoke Polish and, and were goat herders over here, and people who spoke Polish and had cows over here, and people who spoke Polish and were, you know, were, uh, were doctors over there. Let's say they were all something Polish, and we should preserve that. And they ate, they all ate the same kind of dumplings. Um, right. But that's fine. And like, we want to preserve those traditions. Uh, they, they had the same branch of Christianity. Or, uh, but fascist, uh, fascist myth, the fascist mythic past is different. It's 
We were great in the past. We ruled over others with our army. We were a great military power. We had generals. I'm going to surround myself with generals and remind ourselves of our great military past. We humbled everyone in front of us. We took things we wanted from other countries. We had no shame in front of, uh, for, for invading. So it's a military past. It's a military patriarchal past. This was before feminism and liberalism, uh, before the immigrants came in. You know, so it's a very particular vision of the past surrounding past military glory and and before feminism. So that's a very specific past that it's different from, say, social conservatives saying you should just let us have our traditions. OK, I can understand that. And of course, there are echoes with Trump and all Republican politicians and many Democrat as well of rallying around the flag in the military. But. Well, rallying around the flag in the military is different than saying something like Trump did in 2016. Let's go in and seize their oil, you know, which is the kind of that's the kind of thing we did in the past. That's a fascist attitude. Mm -hmm. The the sort of the uh, I mean, I am not for wars under the name of uh, democracy. I think those are problematic, but I don't think those are particularly fascist. Wars of conquest are fascist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think you find many American politicians openly calling for wars of conquest. Now, Trump isn't, you know, I mean, uh, his, his attitude is sort of quasi-incoherent on yes. this. And the, long, and the longstanding, it's a particular feature of American fascist movements like the America First Party, the German-American Bund, is that they were isolationists right. outside the United States. And that's sort of local to us. But it's not rallying around the flag is different because rallying in the, around the flag could be rallying around the flag for democracy. But that's a different. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Just in a nutshell, conservatism is about things were great. If we can just get rid of X, Y, and Z, they'll be great again. And uh, liberalism is about things are almost great. And if we can just get rid of X, Y, and Z, we can finally uh, truly be right, right, the level right. of great yeah. that we've always been on the track toward. That uh, is absolutely. the breakdown. And, and, and fascism is. Things were great when we ruled over others. And that's not conservatism. <laughs> and, and fascism says, and fascism is kind of explicit that things actually never were that way, but we're going to pretend they were that way anyway to make it that way in the future. That is the mythic past, yeah. Okay, so the next uh, pillar is propaganda. I, I had a little trouble wrapping my brain around this chapter. Can you, can you dumb it down for me a little bit? How okay. does that relate? So... There's a very, all politics uses propaganda. Mm -hmm. That's just politics. Of course. But there's a very specific kind of propaganda that you find in fascism. And Hitler is very explicit about it in Mein Kampf. Call your enemy what you are. Uh, so, um, you know, Hitler, Hitler said the Jews want to take over. Uh, you know, they, they, want to, uh, they want to kill us all. Uh, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, but that's actually what he wanted to do to the Jews <laughs> and what he wanted to do. So, uh, so, uh, so there's, a, there's uh, it, one thing I discovered this completely in research. It wasn't something that occurred to me beforehand. All fascist political campaigns are anti-corruption campaigns, which is really weird because fascists are always more corrupt than the people they seek to displace. So, that's right. Putin in 2011 ran an anti-corruption campaign. Bolsonaro ran an 
anti-corruption campaign. That's why you can't be corrupt, because if you're corrupt, you open the door to somebody running an anti-corruption campaign against you who's much more corrupt than you are. So this idea of corruption uh, being, and there's a certain sort of fascist sense of corruption, where democracy is in and itself corrupt. And so, because democracy involves everybody having a voice rather than the person who should be in charge just making the rules. And so, uh, so one of the signatures of fascist propaganda is an anti-corruption campaign run by people who are incredibly corrupt. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. This is maybe the most fascinating part of the book to me. Those of us who are not uh, Trump true believers have looked on wondering how can somebody who is so manifestly corrupt criticize other people's lesser corruption and on top of that be lauded as a bastion of purity by people who support him who have to on some level know better it's just right. it's just i mean the man where the man insists he doesn't wear makeup i mean it is right. it, it's just yeah. it, it is you know untruth incarnate so much of the time and you had a really good explanation for this if you could share it with us this phenomenon yeah so um so, and there's good psychological evidence for this that uh, Ezra Zuckerman C. Vaughn's piece, uh, The Authentic Appeal of the Lying Demagogue, um, if you can, if people think that the system is broken and corrupt, then they will think that the most open liar is the authentic person. So if they think everyone is cheating, they will think the person who's most obviously cheating is the authentic one. Because at least I know what he is. Exactly. And I've heard that verbatim from so many people. You also mentioned, in that wasn't what I was expecting you to say, the bit that I was thinking of was, if you believe as fascists, even people who don't know they're fascists uh, do, that a certain group is, in, is entitled to things, well then he, you can't be corrupt because you're, oh, taking, right. well, you're yeah. taking what rightly belongs to you. Absolutely, that's the sense. Fat, uh, corruption is, like Obama really just, I mean, Obama was not, I mean, I, I think Obama was, you know, Obama was what in, in my childhood would have been called a moderate New England Republican. And he was, you know, uh, you know, he was not corrupt, but he was, you know, into the banks and into a kind of, you know, he was like Reagan or something. And, right. uh, and, uh, so, uh, so he wasn't corrupt in terms of violating the law, but a lot of people found him uniquely corrupt because the idea that a black man could have power was in and itself corrupt. And that's mm -hmm. something you find everywhere in this politics. When the minority group is, is in control of any kind of institution, it's corrupt, that institution. Uh, so you find in, in, in Michigan, for instance, when the, the disasters that led to Flint uh, involved replacing all the black majority cities by emergency financial managers because you know supposedly black americans couldn't self-govern because they were quote corrupt unquote so uh similarly with jews in germany uh, under the nazis the jews were supposedly corrupt so you needed to replace things and have someone from the chosen group run things because that's what non-corruption meant I, I, I assume you're you're talking about an unconscious bias there. I don't know how I don't know how many people literally said that's a black man can't be president, therefore he is corrupt because he is no, a it's black not, man. It's, yeah. it's it's whatever led people, whatever leads people. Uh, yeah, of course it's an unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. 
and, 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 and it's people immediately associate the minority group with corruption, lawlessness, laziness. That's what it is to be the oppressed minority group in any society. Uh, number three on your list of pillars of fascism is anti-intellectualism. As you describe it, universities are branded as incubators of liberalism, Marxism, and feminism. And then there's a part two of that that I want to deal with separately. Again, I hear so many loud banging echoes of of Nixon times here because I, I have not been on a college campus in 20 some years and I had a brief chat with Jordan Peterson and I said well come on haven't they always been and he's and I'm sure you have your opinions about Jordan Peterson but he said you don't know you haven't been there recently it's really gotten crazy I don't know you're there I'm I'm not I can already tell that you disagree with his take on this L universities a have always been incredibly liberal and the kids don't get radicalized when they show up there that's the, the, the more advanced the school, the brighter the kids, the more liberal they are when they show up. I remember that. That's never going to change. Li universities can't be more radically liberal than they were in the 60s. Right. They're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. You are and correct. They, they are very liberal. Of course they are. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and, that's, and that's not an American phenomenon, I'm sure. It's everywhere. If you look at India yeah. right now, the crackdown on universities in India has been brutal because the universities are always the sites for protests against anti-war protests. They're always the sites. The universities in India are the sites for the pushback against Modi, for the changes in the citizenship laws to prefer Hindus uh, over Muslims. Um, uh, in Brazil, they've cut the university budgets, federal university budgets by 30%. The Brazilian universities are starting to rise to the top in the world. They've just cut them completely. Um, and in the United States, we're having an attack on the universities. Uh, and if you think about it, like, what, what is the crown jewel of the United States? Well, you know, we have the world's greatest universities. Everywhere in the world, people want their kids to come to our universities. Um, and what Trump is doing is he's trying to end that. He's trying to make people say, okay, you can't send your kids to Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, to the University of Michigan, to Berkeley, Wisconsin. You, we have these great public universities in the United States that, you know, educate, you know, University of Wisconsin, University of Michigan, these are top 20 universities in the world, and they're open to uh, the citizens of a state. But the more, uh, the more university education people have, um, I mean, it doesn't really make, it, it's complicated, because it's not, you know, the university doesn't really, uh, uh, I don't have the facts at my disposal about the web, but Democracy requires an educated population. So, you know, yeah, I don't I don't think you should need facts to 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 demonstrate that. Right. And, exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so uh, if you want to, you know, if you want to uh, give people the sense that somebody else should make the decisions, uh, destroy the education system. Um, so uh, so that's just a uniform feature of all of these movements now. Uh, that uh, that they attack universities and the and Stephen Miller is a protege of David Horowitz who's long attacked universities um, he's he's long said universities are uh, places of uh, of uh, you know left-wing ide ideology and you know actually universities economics is one of the largest majors in universities and you're not going to find a Marxist economist at Yale even though uh, one thing the last 20 years should have demonstrated is that we need a new Marxist economist 
at Yale. Uh, so, uh, so you know, e economics, psychology, political science, these are extremely conservative majors. Now, it's true that there are more African-American studies departments in American universities, thank God, than there were 40 years ago. Um, right. But, and, uh, and so there's going to be a pushback against that because in the, and you find that everywhere. Erdogan in Turkey is doing that. In Hungary, they're pushing back. History is the battlefront. Um, history is the battlefront because if you teach, uh, 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 that's why the Republic conservatives rightly went after local school boards early on because history is the battlefront for how people are going to think ab about the future. I remember I had in my public high school, I had like a neo-Nazi German immigrant history teacher who I actually got along with um, because I would push back and he would like that. But he said some weird things like Hitler was half Jewish and things like that. And I see the effects of his remarks decades later on Facebook from the people who were in that class with me. Oh, come on, really? Yeah, because, you know, that was their last history class. You know, 10th grade, 11th grade, hit European history. And so the things he said about like quasi-Holocaust denial and such like, those made it way, made their way. So, so the universities are a battleground. And also, these, these ideologues are by their nature men of action. And so, you know, the idea that these pointy-headed intellectuals, yeah. those are the enemy. The liberals, the elites, that is a non-stop non theme of this of this uh and then you use the universities uh you use the universities as an enemy like the problem is our universities have become so expensive and so that makes them natural class enemies and so unfortunately they fall into they're they're setting themselves up to be a target yeah 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 in, in, in many ways that's right and you're talking about the man of action the the horse sense versus the the book learning Absolutely. which is once again not a feature strictly of uh, of donald trump or, or the republican uh, party exclusively the other part of the anti-intellectualism pillar is expertise no longer has any value now this one was one of the moments where i went "Ooh, okay now that is that's a little on the nose for where we are right now i don't see how anybody could argue with this being a consistent pillar of um of of donald trump where it's not that expertise has no value it's that everybody who agrees with me is a genius and everybody who disagrees with me is a moron and it doesn't matter if it's the same person you're talking about in a two-week span so absolutely so uh so at the core of fascist ideology and this is why trump sometimes fits it is yes. a friend enemy distinction he's he's like a non-intellectual fascist is a friend enemy distinction you're either for me or against me. Right. Uh, there's no universal reason. Hitler is an intellect intellectualizes this. So Hitler's explicit. There's no universal reason. When Hitler talks about science in Mein Kampf, he says science is only an instrument for national glory. And when it's not an instrument for national glory, it's to be ignored. So what so when you think so it's the fascism lens is helpful to think about some some of the ways Trump thinks because he only thinks in this friend-enemy way. You're either with him or against him. And the fa thing about expertise and competence is that, uh, is that expertise and competence is not a friend-enemy thing. Expertise and competence is about tracking the truth and tracking reality. And so- yes. That's why he has so, trouble with Dr. Fauci. Absolutely. Because, you know, he just wants Dr. Fauci to yes-man him. And, and then, you know, and why more generally, 
you, so I had to write the, the so this book was written in 2017, published yes. in 2018, and just came out in paperback. And I had to yes. write the preface and sat in the preface on March 14th. And so I decided I had to write something about COVID in it. But on March 14th, it was really unclear who would do well and who would do poorly with COVID. So I made a bet in the preface. I made a bet that the countries that would do worse would be the United States, Brazil, India, and Russia, four countries that figure prominently in my book, in my analysis, yeah. because they're led by leaders who have this analysis. And people at the time questioned me. They said, are you sure? Won't strong men do well on this? But no, because these are people who will not confront reality. And yeah, what, what is what is that? Because, uh, you know, China has a strong man with a huge authoritarian apparatus, which is uh, I don't think I would want to live in China, but in certain ways, a pretty good place to be during during coronavirus. So what what is this thing I've been trying to figure out the entire time of where it's Brilliant. not it's not but just denying unreality because, you know, you can get away with it. It's the continued it, it, the, the continued insistence coronavirus will just go away the denial of unreality even when you're shooting yourself in the foot and you're watching yourself fall in the polls as a result of it and bolsonaro might well be leading himself to that same sort of fate it doesn't seem like a canny political thing for him to deny the reality i don't know i've never been to brazil but what is what is that about these right. types of leaders so a lot of people said why didn't you just write a book about authoritarianism why mm -hmm. didn't you write a book that was denouncing left what Cuba and uh, China, uh, those are different cases, but, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, the authoritarian elements and Putin and Orban and the authoritarian right. Why did you choose right-wing, far-right authoritarianism? What? And my reason is they're very, they're bo they both suck, but they're different and they manifest very differently and they have different strengths and weaknesses. If communism, communist authoritarianism, is like rationality gone to an absurd conclusion, right. a planned full rationality, uh, that's what communist authoritarianism is like. Like it's like the enlightened. We will sacrifice millions so that in a hundred years the world will be much better. The world will be planned. We will plan this whole thing. And uh, fascist authoritarianism is not planned, not rational. It's all about, we will act in the moment. We will conquer and act now. We will respond from the hip. We will not think and reflect. It's, it's an opposite reflection. Both kinds of authoritarianism are bad, and if you counted up the bodies, communist authoritarianism would yield more bodies. But, uh, but in the face of something like COVID-19, it's the anti-intellectual far-right authoritarian version of, you know, is fascism that is going to be helpless because it denies reality, it denies science. It's not some kind of communist authoritarianism says we're going to do social science and and craft the future with planet. Fascist yeah. authoritarianism says, no, we're just going to, you know, it's all about the will. And so that's why you, you have these leaders just they don't they, they, they veer from crisis to crisis. And, and then they depend upon their connection with their supporters to get them out of it. I can easily understand how one person could operate in such a manner. I've definitely been around, if you think of Trump as a businessman, I've been around business owners who operate with 
magical thinking and right. and, and and narcissism, but you would have to think that you you get to that point where uh, you, you've taken yourself out too far on the plank and Republican governors or you know senators or whatever or your own administration go, okay, well, this is now you're this is just crazy and and demo I thought it was crazy at first. Here we are X huh. amount of months later. It's demonstrably crazy and you still haven't changed tack. Did really read about the history of Nazi Germany then. So how do you do is yeah. he selling other people on this crazy vision of let's talk specifically about coronavirus of of what is going on and how we need to deal with it or were they all kind of somehow weirdly in the same place and they found each other and if so how did they all get to this place of unreality well i think that so there's uh enough documentation now that in kushner's uh in kushner's uh you know special committee for dealing with the coronavirus uh, the political strategists told them that it would remain just in democratic cities and democrat so it wasn't something they needed to really focus or worry about Where people which is cluster. an enemy thing right right so that was like a miscalculated friend enemy thing but now that the miscalculation has been proven to be such you still don't see a whole i guess among i would i guess i would disagree um with myself governors senators you do see them creating a bit of distance yeah, I think so. Um, but, you know, everything you read about, like, World War II was the same madness. I mean, you know, conquer the world, really? Like, German generals, everyone was telling, you know, they could. Hitler's desire was to conquer the world and subjugate all of Russia. Turn it, I mean, he had a completely impossible world vision to do a dual front war against the Soviet Union and uh, and the rest of the world. Uh, it was impossible. Uh, and to the last moment, his supporters believed he was going to win. So it's, and Hitler believed he was going to win. Good, uh, uh, my friend Federico Finkelstein, the great, the greatest living historian of Latin American fascism, has a great new book called uh, A Brief History of Fascist Lies. And it begins with a vignette from Goebbels. Goebbels planned his own su a, a suicide, a, a murder attempt, an assassination attempt on him to make him look good. And we know Goebbels planned it. He planned it for months. And on himself. On himself, yes. yes. For the media. Right. Uh, so a fake assassination attempt. But in his diary, which Goebbels just meant for himself, Goebbels writes as if it was for real. So Finkelstein is saying that's this distinctive thing that it's this kind of believing your own shtick. And we know that Hitler thought that way. Hitler no. believed that they would pull it out. Um, so it, it's this kind of, so that's why it's not really lying because the leaders actually believe the crazy things they say. Um, and I think we are seeing that. Uh, yeah, I think that might also be fair to say. I'm uh, running out of time with you. I've already kept you a little bit longer than I, I promised I would. We don't have time for all 10. I want to touch briefly on this pillar, this notion of victimhood, any gains for minorities, them are a loss for us. This, to me, seems the very crux of the, you know, all lives matter mantra, for example. Right. Um, the idea coming from Trump, these are the words out of his mouth, that um, the Brett Kavanaugh comment, uh, confirmation hearing, regardless of the truth of the past of that situation, could only be seen through the lens of this is very bad news for privileged 
white men who can be ruined by accusations, which is true, but it's just one element of a huge tapestry. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a standard thing you see in the immigration stuff. You see it in, in general. You see it in the um, in the example you just brought up, the men's like the men's rights movement. Uh, you know, equality is really taking our privileges away, um, which to some extent it is. <laughs> but uh, but, you know, I mean, if we really are going to address the 12 to one uh, wealth gap between whites and blacks at birth, um, we're going to be have to, you know, give a lot of money up and change neighborhoods. And uh, we'll have to meet in the middle somewhere. Right. We'll have to meet in the middle somewhere. Um, but ultimately, one would think that would make the world better for everybody. Yeah. Um, and uh, as we learned from a pandemic, if some if, if people crammed into apartments to get, crammed into apartments together, they're going to get sick and we'll get sick, too. If those of us who don't live in those situations. So what you but what you try to do is you try to create the situation where equality is really an attempt to take over. That's what the Protocols of the Elders of Zion says. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion says, you know, equality is really a way for the Jews to take over. Um, it, right. You know, and this is the famous for forgery that the Nazis leaned on. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so this is this is something that that so the idea is black people don't want equality. They really want to take over, uh, you know, even though and this is a long standing. Uh, so dominant group victimhood, the dominant group is the world's greatest victim of movements for equality. And that is exactly like Black Lives Matter, the reaction to Black Lives Matter. You're saying white lives don't matter. Uh, and as I show in the book, I begin that chapter by talking about Andrew Johnson's reaction to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which we can all agree that newly free, free, freed people, black Americans, just out of slavery, uh, were really down on their luck and needed some help and protection from their former, the people who had enslaved them who were all around them. And this is a bill meant to ensure that. And Andrew Johnson said, the then president said, this will give more rights. Uh, this will make the white race the most oppressed race in history. That's right. what dominant group victimhood is. The idea that if, if, if minorities get any, any help for equality, it's really your victimization. I'm glad you used an example from um, deep American history, you know, distant by our terms, American history, because it, it does, it's a, for me, a comforting reminder that there's nothing new under the sun. And as much as we live in this constant panic, um, in reality, this is a constant battle between one element of human instinct against another that'll never be uh, won or lost. I really enjoyed talking to you. I wish we could talk longer. I had a lot more things I wanted to go over. I would encourage people who are interested one way or another in this friendly debate we've been having um, to, to read your book because this is just the tip of the iceberg of the stuff that you cover. You are Jason Stanley. The book is called How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Very timely reading. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Michael. Great discussion.